Our scripture reading for today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Listen now to the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The word of the Lord. morning. The Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made. And once again, we ask that your spirit would speak to us in our hearts and our minds. And that in the hearing of your word, we would be encouraged and strengthened and challenged and empowered to obey. Help us to live more faithfully in accordance with your word. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Charles Dickens began his classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities, with this memorable opening line, a line that I think is true of every age, including ours. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch 
of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. That's a good sentence for a story. When you're writing a story, you want to start with something that grabs people's attention, as these do. Call me Ishmael. Anyone? Moby Dick. It was a dark and stormy night. No? A wrinkle in time. Where's Papa going with that axe? Said Fern to her mother as they were setting the table for breakfast. Charlotte's Web. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and Prejudice. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Anna Karenina. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. 1984. This is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. The Princess Bride. So maybe they're not as good as I thought they were. <laughs> not as memorable. But imagine you are tasked with writing the greatest story ever. How would you begin? In the beginning. That's a good beginning. Among a billion different possibilities, Matthew chose the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Ooh, can't wait to read more. He then lists a series of fathers and sons between Abraham and David and between David and the deportation to Babylon and then from the deportation in Babylon all the way until he gets to the end where he says, to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. It's not the most interesting way to begin the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation for the whole world. It's not the most compelling way to begin the entire New Testament. If this were any other book, I think most of us would stop reading after a few sentences. And yet Matthew felt it was important to begin the gospel in this way. So as the saying goes, let's not judge a book by its cover. Let's not judge a gospel by its first few opening sentences. I think there are many good reasons why Matthew would choose to begin the gospel with these words. And I just want to highlight three this morning with you. First, the reason he does this is that the genealogy establishes Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises, and that is good news. 
the genealogy establishes Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises, and that is good news for us. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I mentioned last Sunday that the word genealogy is related to the word Genesis. The genealogy of Jesus or the genesis of Jesus, is supposed to be a reminder to us and sends us back to the beginnings of creation, to in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and so immediately we are mindful that some sort of creation or recreation, a new genesis, is happening here. And then Matthew links the story not only all the way back to the beginning of creation, but he gives us these two historical anchors in Abraham and David. Abraham is considered the father of the Jewish people, and God had promised Abraham way back in Genesis 12, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God repeated that promise to Abraham's descendants. And it is a promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so it's vital that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham to fulfill this promise of blessing. And then there's David. He represents the height of the powers of the Jewish nation when King David reigned over a unified Israel. Along with the promise given to Abraham, David is given the further promise in 2 Samuel 7, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so it's vital that Jesus not only be a descendant of Abraham to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, but that he be a descendant of King David to fulfill God's promise of a kingdom that is established forever. Now, the promise given to Abraham seemed to find some fulfillment when God established David's kingdom. But when that nation fell apart through a civil war, and then the nation was defeated and plundered by the Babylonians and then the the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, and then they were taken into exile... It seemed like all the promises of God had failed. God seemed absent in their exile. They had no kingdom, and they themselves certainly did not feel blessed, let alone think of themselves as being a blessing to others. And now, of course, in the days of Matthew, as he's writing, living under Roman occupation, having a son of Abraham, a son of David, and returning back to some idea of a glorious kingdom seems like just something that you can't even begin to imagine. But Matthew says, this is the genesis. This is the beginning of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the the son of Abraham, the son of David. In the beginning, this is now, the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises. In Jesus, the blessings of God, the forgiveness of sins, the salvation of eternal life is now made possible for all people. In Jesus, 
the righteous kingdom of God has been ushered in a kingdom that will have no end. The genealogy teaches us that God is able to keep his promises to Abraham and to David and to his people throughout the ages. And so we can have the same confidence. We can have the confidence that God will keep his promises to us. Secondly, the genealogy is a demonstration that the good news is the work of God, but that it is also requires of us, it requires the participation of flawed but faithful people. It is entirely the work of God, but it also requires the participation of God's flawed but faithful people. As again, as I mentioned last week, Joseph has to adopt Jesus into his family line because he is not the biological father. So even though we get this long genealogy that traces all the way to Joseph, he is not Jesus' biological father. He is Mary's son, entirely Mary's. And Matthew is very clear on this point. In verse 16, after going through the genealogy, he concludes, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born, who was called Christ. The pattern of the genealogy would lead us to think that Matthew would conclude with, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the father of Jesus. But he doesn't do that. Joseph is listed not as the father, but as the husband of Mary. Not as the father of Jesus, but the husband of Mary. And grammatically, it's even clearer. He writes, of whom Jesus was born. Now, I know in the English, when you see this uh, sentence, um, of whom Jesus was born, it's possible for us to think the of whom includes both Joseph and Mary. Uh, But this is not possible in the Greek. In the Greek, that of whom is in the feminine singular. It's a feminine singular, meaning it can only be Jesus, just one person, and it's feminine, so it has to be Mary. Joseph is absolutely not included in this of whom. Jesus is born of Mary and Mary only. And so as we saw last week, Joseph has to choose to go beyond the righteousness that is demanded of him according to the law and keep his faithfulness to Mary despite all the the controversies that's surrounding this and to wed her and to then adopt Jesus as his own son and thus fulfill the promises of God. It requires this incredible level of grace and faithfulness on the part of Joseph in order for God to fulfill these promises. Now, Matthew doesn't dwell very much on Mary. Luke's gospel spends much more time on Mary. But it's obvious, right, that it also requires an enormous faithfulness on the part of Mary to believe that this incredibly scandalous situation that she finds herself in is somehow a part of God's redeeming plan for the whole world. And here I think Matthew, in this genealogy, is giving Mary a gift, a gift at which we also can receive. If you read through the genealogy, you will notice that there are small variations in the established pattern of naming father and son, father and son, father and son. And and these just kind of pop out because it it just breaks the pattern. 
Now, typically, Jewish genealogies would only include a list of fathers' names and their sons. And you can see this basic pattern throughout, right? Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of uh, Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and so on. So when it says that Joseph was the husband of Mary, that word husband just kind of pops out, and so you have to figure out, oh, why, why is he doing that? Well, scholars and, and preachers uh, throughout the ages have long noticed that in this genealogy, there are four names, four women included, that should not be there. Embedded in this list of fathers and sons, we find four women who should not be included in a typical genealogy. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Tamar. Verse 5, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And then verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, whom we know to be Bathsheba. Tamar, I don't know if you remember her, but you know, she got pregnant after a very, very uh, scandalous, um, humiliating ploy that she had to trick her father-in-law to get pregnant because he had promised her one of his sons as husband, a promise which he did not keep. Rahab was a Canaanite. She bravely saved the Israelite spies, but she was a sex worker. And you can imagine the kind of scandal that would have surrounded her life as she got married and as she had children. Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites are a people that came from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. And so by association with that people, she would have been held in derision. And so then she also had this incredible uh, faithfulness, which she displayed despite that, and she married uh, Boaz and, and then had a child, which was a cause for great celebration. A child that was half Jewish and half Moabite. And then the wife of Uriah, um, and I, it's not clear to me why Matthew doesn't simply say Bathsheba. We know about her, uh, that she was a victim of David's uh, violence and put into an impossible situation. She then lost her first child as punishment for David's sin. And but despite that trauma, she somehow managed to survive and work to make sure that her second son, Solomon, would become the next king. These four women had rumors and scandal and gossip surrounding them and their pregnancies and their families. But all four women acted as righteously as was possible in their circumstances, even though, even though they were reviled, they were hated because of, of, of their ethnicity, their, their profession, their history, their pregnancy, their marriage. They were not supposed to be in this family tree. They are triply unbelonging. They're women. They have disreputable histories. 
at least supposedly, and most of them are foreigners. Their presence is an embarrassment to those who want a pure and righteous family tree. They're the skeletons in the closet that every family prefers to keep hidden. Just like what Mary is facing. Just like what Jesus will face. They don't belong. And yet, God says, and Matthew tells us, they do belong. I think collectively these four women forms a kind of small group of encouragement for Mary. She's found herself in this inexplicable pregnancy. It's doubtful that anyone, including her parents, are going to believe that her pregnancy is by the Holy Spirit. That discovery has put her marriage and her entire future in jeopardy. But Matthew is reminding Mary, consider these four women. They also had extraordinarily difficult pregnancies and circumstances. You are not alone. Whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever difficulties that you are facing, whether of your own creation or those made by others for you, whether at home or at work or at school, these are often situations you have very little control over. But you can still choose for the most part how you're going to respond. And you can choose to respond in faithfulness and in grace to do what is right. Others have been in challenging, difficult circumstances. Just like you, you're not alone. The good news for us is not that you will never face a difficult situation, not that you will never be put into a bad set of circumstances, but that even in those situations, you can still choose to do what is righteous. You can still choose to be faithful. And that God can still use those circumstances in your life to bring about his redemptive plan for you and for the world. God is not trying to create these bad situations for you, but God can and will work through them if you are willing to be faithful. And third, I think the genealogy gives us the ultimate answer to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything else. I hope at least a few of you are fans of Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It was one of my favorite books when I was in high school. One of my friends and I started uh, carrying an extra towel around uh, whenever we traveled because The Hitchhiker's Guide recommended and told us that a towel is the most massively useful thing that an interstellar hitchhiker can have. Yes, I was, I was that cool. One of the better jokes in the book is that a supercomputer is given a task of calculating the answer to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. And so after seven and a half million years of computing, this supercomputer finally comes up with an answer. And so the whole universe gathers around this, this supercomputer to hear the answer that it has been cogitating for seven and a half million years. What is 
the answer to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. And the answer is 42. Right? That's the joke. It's 42. Now, I read um, in some interviews that he did that he just randomly picked that number, that there's no secret or profound hidden meaning behind the number. It was just a completely... It's just a complete joke. So I'm not suggesting anything deeper here, okay? But I think it is quite serendipitous that in verse 17, Matthew writes, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 14 generations plus 14 generations plus 14 generations equals 42. Matthew's answer to the ultimate question about life, the universe, and everything arrives at Jesus at 42 generations. Now again, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting anything other than a fun coincidence. Maybe only fun for me. And just so there's no misunderstanding, Matthew does have 42 generations, but he's fudging the numbers. If you compare this list, for example, with a similar list in 1 Chronicles, you'll see that Matthew deletes three generations. In verse 8, he goes from Joram to Uzziah, but if you look in 1 Chronicles, you'll see that there are three other names that he just deleted so that he can get a 14. He's not trying to be like absolutely clear. He, he's just trying to get it 14 three times so that it's nice and neat, okay? The reason he does this is because I know we don't care about our ancestors' names, right? Like how many of you know the names of your grandparents? A few, right? Not very many. How many of you know the names of your great-grandparents? Right? It, we, we just, we don't keep that list in our heads. But it was important for the people of Israel to know those names, to be able to trace their ancestry back multiple generations. Lineages were carefully kept in archives and it was a proof of your identity. It was, it was needed when you had uh, land disputes, uh, inheritance rights, and so on. So it, it's important that people knew who their ancestors were. And here, Matthew is using this list to show that Jesus is the fulfillment, is the son of Abraham and of David. And so this 14 generations that he comes up with, Matthew does this. He fudges the numbers a little bit as a memory aid for people who are memorizing these lists. Here's what he's doing. In Hebrew, there's a system of assigning numerical values to the letters of the alphabet. It's called uh, gematria. And so, for example, in English, an English simple version would be something like A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, D equals 4, and so on. And then you could take a person's name, and assign a number to each of those letters, and that person would be equal to some number. You with me? All right, now, David 
And, and in Hebrew, they don't count the, uh, the, uh, the vowels. So David would be D-V-D. D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. V is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you have the fourth letter, the sixth letter, and the fourth letter, which equals 14, right? And so he's using David as a key. So you think like, how many people were there? David, 14, 14 generations. That's, the, that's what he's doing here in this list. He's trying to help people to learn this list by having this key of David equaling 14, using David as a marker to have these three sets of 14. So by doing that, he gets into this, uh, to this number. Now again, he, he's not being precise, right? He skips some generations. And if you look at the last list, he says it's from David to the deportation, but it's actually from Solomon to the deportation. And then he uses Jokonai's name twice. So he's really just kind of fudging the numbers. So again, I want to be clear that he, this is not an exact sign. So people who tell you stuff like, you know, there has to be 42 generations. No, that's not it at all. This is just a way to help people remember this, this general list. But the point is, it goes from Abraham and there is a traceable, historical, a real tracing of peoples all the way down to Jesus. That's what's going on here. So this list of generations is an answer to the meaning of life. At least for those of us who confess that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and according to Matthew. All of history directed by God over these 42 and more generations with the participation of those who were faithful to God as well as with those who were not faithful, God produced the Savior, Jesus Christ. The genealogy is that answer. That's what he's doing with these numbers. There's other things that he's doing here with these numbers, but you know, that's one piece of what he's doing here. It's one way of saying that the birth of Jesus Christ, that all of the promises of God are now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, I said that in the beginning, that there were four women and Mary uh, who had unusual or even miraculous births. But the entire genealogy begins with the promise God made to Abraham and to Sarah. And the promise God made to Abraham and Sarah began with an impossible birth. The child, the promised child to Abraham, through whom all the peoples of the earth would be blessed, was a child that could not have been born. Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. Now, I know that they lived you know, longer than people live today, but having a child at 90 it's biologically impossible. It, it can't be done. It's no more possible than the virgin birth. And do you see? That's the point. That's the point. The genealogy tells us that from the very beginning to the very end, all of life, every life, is a miracle of God. The life of the Messiah is only possible because of the work of God. 
the genealogy, this redemptive work of God, is filled with so many, so many improbable births and is bracketed by two impossible births. You know, and and that's no different from your life and mine. You being here, you being born, I mean, that's, that's a miracle. And then being born again, that's another miracle. This is the good news. The good news that God so loved the world from before the foundations of the world that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, in fulfillment of a promise made to his people to be born of a virgin, to be adopted by Joseph into the Abrahamic and Davidic lines after more than 42 generations, that whosoever, male, female, Jew, Gentile, Canaanite, Hittite, believes in him, trusts him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life into the joyful presence of God forever. Jesus is the answer to life, the universe, and everything else. Begin with him. Come to him and believe the good news and be at peace. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you um, for this word, even a genealogy, this prosaic list of names that may not mean very much to us. And yet, and yet, we know that you have planned our redemption from the very, very beginning. And this genealogy reminds us that you have been with us from the beginning and that you'll be with us until the end. So God, help us to believe your word and to participate in the work that you are doing in the world through acts of faithfulness and grace. We thank you for Jesus, our Lord, and we pray this in his name. Amen.